We've discussed climate change on Iconocast on more than one previous episode. It is the strongest threat that we must overcome in order to maintain our civilization. And there are tools to mitigate the effects, to reduce emissions, and to slow the rate of increase in global average temperature to what is, is survivable. But as a matter of fact, the wheels have been spinning in muddy denialism, and we are stuck. Just days before this podcast was published, the EPA, which is supposed to be the Environmental Protection Agency, announced that there will be an easing in the rules that automobile manufacturers follow in order to decrease the fuel cost per mile. Our government is subsidizing oil and coal companies so that they can continue to be profitable as they expend money on difficult-to-access oil and mountaintop coal reserves. There are alternatives, but we need to have the desire and the will to extend the resources towards reversing the increase in carbon-based greenhouse gases into the air. We are headed for a disaster, and the crime is that we have known how to fix it, but have allowed industry to freeze us into action. Peter Carter and Elizabeth Woodworth co-wrote Unprecedented Crime, Climate Science Denial, and Game Changes for Survival, a book in which they review the crisis the bad actors, and the effects that climate change will have if we don't strive to hold to the agreed 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in global average temperature. Dr. Carter is our guest for this episode, and if you're streaming from a podcast, you be sure to go to iconocast.com and follow the link to purchase the book through Amazon. And now, Unprecedented Crimes with Peter Carter and Greg Layden and Mike Hobrick. Peter, you are the co-author of a very interesting book on climate change that has taken a perspective that is, as far as books go, unique in a couple of ways, in that it is really a kind of manifesto for serious and intensive action to respond to the climate change crisis. One of the things you say in your book, you start off with this idea, is that we are engaged, we are seeing right now a very sudden and rapid and worrisome number of climate events that are happening right now. And over the last couple of years, it seems as though the effects of climate change have accelerated significantly. I think people sometimes might read that and say, I'll play devil's advocate here. You know, yeah. this is just another environmentalist saying the world's going to end. They've been saying that all along. It never has ended. You could even be declared, some people will call you an alarmist, which is the favorite word that certain yeah. people use to describe climate scientists and so on. What's your defense of that? What, what, what's your what's your uh, argument that we really are seeing something different now that we might not have been seeing even something like five years ago? Okay. Well, well. First of all, it's just not my opinion. Um, uh, I, I don't actually give out my opinions very much. I'm uh, an an expert reviewer for the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and I'm published on climate change, and I have been presenting for years on climate change. Um, we've just been accepted, like next month I'll be in Vienna at the international, um, big international European conference, the uh, European Geosciences Assembly. Uh, I can't afford to be humble about this. I, I know what I'm talking about. And as regards, you know, the alarmist thing, well, of course, um, this has just been going on forever. It started, um, as we have in the book, it started actually back in 1989 with the um, what was then called the Global Warming Coalition, which was out of the States and all the big uh, fossil fuel energy corporations. And um, uh, we have that um, deception and outright lying um, even worse because now we have the uh, President Trump administration and the entire administration, which is a Republican one, I gather, the entire administration is packed with dangerous climate change deniers. Um, uh, President Trump in his campaign said it was a hoax. Well, we've heard this from, from Senator Inhofe for years and years and years. So if there's a conspiracy, it's not on our side. The other point on the, uh, on the sort of um, ridiculous conspiracy accusation, which they're still putting out, is that the, is that the IPCC the uh, science authority on climate change is uh, particularly special. Not only does it represent the world's scientists, but also, and this is something that people may not realize, it has a representative on the panel of every single world government. So every single line that is published in the IPCC assessments is scrutinized by 
policymakers representing all governments, and the IPCC assessment, which I use, which I refer to, and which is in the book, um, assessments over many years, um, they have been passed, approved by every government in the world, as well as every national science organization and uh, royal society. So it's absolutely astounding. I'm, I must say I, I'm completely amazed. I never expected the um, uh, the what I call now the dangerous climate change denial to continue. But in actual fact, as the evidence gets totally overwhelming, when we scientists now understand or in say, saying that we're in a catastrophic situation, um, the uh, you know the de- denial campaign gets stronger and stronger and more aggressive. So. Anyway, I do uh, I do my science as the other scientists do their science, and it's pretty damn frustrating. I can tell you that, but we're doing our best. What, what do you see as relatively new in in actual climate and climate change what, uh, since the last IPCC report came out? What would you What do you anticipate to be different in the next report that because of developments that have happened in the actual climate system since then? Yeah, now um, the scientists completely agreed. It was practically agreed in the last assessment of 2014, which was the fifth assessment, that these um, increasing extreme weather events that we're having, uh, the science has come on in leaps and bounds on this. So every every single um, big, disastrous um, extreme weather event now can be attributable or not to global climate change. The World Meteorological Organization actually has just published. Um, uh, it does every year, it does a, um, it calls it a extreme weather events report from the point of view of climate change. And so we do know, I think it's pretty darn obvious to the public, that uh, these extraordinary extreme weather events, which are greatly increasing, by the way, are driven, of course, by global surface warming. Now, you'd ask about uh, um, new science. Just uh, three days ago, the uh, European uh, Science Assembly um, on uh, Climate, um, it's a a special scientist assembly that they put together for extreme weather events because Europe has been particularly affected by this, but also, um, of course, the United States. And uh, this is, this is uh, uh, from our point of view, a pretty, uh, very good confirming, um, unfortunately, report that floods in Europe over the past uh, few decades, just since 1980, they've doubled since uh, 2011. They've quadrupled. I mean, that is huge, right? But also um, uh, heat waves, um, uh, heat waves, droughts. And forest fires since 1980 in Europe, they have doubled. And the extreme storms, of course, since 1980, they've more than doubled. Actually, the uh, the other ones are more than doubled as well. So, um, obviously, one of the things which we've always been worried about for years and years and years was uh, extreme weather events. Um, it's despite what the uh, what the deniers say, it's really pretty obvious. You know, you have global warming. You're going to have uh, increased heat waves. You're going to have increased heat waves. You're going to have increased droughts. So um, uh, the science on this has been settled for years and years and years, but that is very, very, very alarming. There's no question about that. Uh, more science. Um, uh, the um, the uh, attribution of extreme weather, both extreme cold and the ones I've just mentioned, uh, to the northern hemisphere, and that includes the United States and Canada, from the uh, rapid decline in summer sea ice. Um, uh, there was a report very recently about that now, um, uh, several reports recently. So we're getting these, um, it's really chaotic weather, you know. Um, uh, we're getting, um, uh, in fact, I can recall just a couple of months ago, there was a temperature um, uh, put out on North America, and it was quite amazing. You could see on the one side, right down North America, it was extremely cold, and down the other side, it was much hotter than normal. So um, we're really getting a chaotic situation with respect to both the global surface warming that we're getting, but also to the rapid melt away 
of uh, summer sea ice and also a northern hemisphere snow. Um, as regards uh, other science that's come through um, recently, uh, the I think most people are aware that uh, global surface warming, global warming, has um, accelerated recently. The WMO's reports um, says the last three years are the hottest years on record. But something that really important and for uh, for for the scientists here came out just six weeks ago was from the UK Met Office, that's one of the big climate centers in the UK. Um, with their new super duper computers, they've been able to make a near term prediction, which we've never had before. And the prediction is what is the global surface warming going to do until for the next five years until 2022? Um, uh, their computer tells them it's going to continue increasing very rapidly. And that's very bad. We're already over uh, one degree C. We're 1.1 degrees C. Um, a big change from the point of view of the science, which is a good change, is that the um, two degree C target, which we've had since 1996, the one good thing in a way that came out of the 2015 Paris United Nations uh, uh, Climate Conference was the Paris Agreement. And I must say, I was uh, pleasantly surprised because of the uh, denial and opposition that, of course, we see from governments in the uh, in the UN, UN climate conferences, that the scientists have now all come around to the 1.5 degrees C limit. Um, uh, two degrees C, everybody agrees now, that, that's, um, that's catastrophe. Uh, 1.5 is, is disastrous. I, I, uh, submitted a couple of years ago to the Oxford 1.5 degrees C in conference. So 1.5 degrees C, you can imagine, with the extreme weather events that we get now at 1 degree C, 1.5, they're gonna be, uh, they're gonna be really pretty terrible. But the, uh, good thing is that, um, people are getting very serious now about, apart from, of course, the deniers and the done-denying governments, um, uh, but the public and the scientists and some of the policymakers indeed, about, um, uh, well, what we've got to do is, is very definite, and there's no question. The important thing is that our global emissions have to be declining now, today. Um, we were told this, actually, in the fourth assessment of the IPCC, which is 2007, that emissions had to be declining by 2015. Um, so uh, we knew that uh, we were, uh, that the uh, train had left the station, so to speak. Um, but everybody knows the uh, science papers are now all published that, um, uh, and from the WMO and from UNEP and from all these organizations that global emissions have to be declining now. I say one thing that's good news in the U.S. is that even though our our national government is run by a clown and denier. Uh, the actual, what we actually have to do, of course, is stop using fossil fuels, stop releasing uh, fossilized carbon into the atmosphere as CO2 and methane. And in the States anyway, I think it's similar in Canada. That's, kind of, that's more done at a state level. The actual implementation of the transition to electricity is something that states have more power in than the federal government which means that some of our states are moving quickly in that direction. And we we may be getting – a lot of people say, well, the free market will help us here because, you know, uh, it, it, electricity made out of wind and sun is cheaper and market forces will help us. Uh, I don't personally think that that's enough. I think that we have to go faster than that. But we are seeing change happen fairly quickly. It's probably not fast enough. I think we probably have to go faster. But – that happens more or less independently of the federal government. In in your book, Unprecedented Crime, I mean, the title of your book is Unprecedented Crime, Climate, Science, Denial, and Game Changers for Survival. You make the claim, you and your co-author, that make the claim that business as usual with respect to energy use and so on is a crime against humanity. Uh, yes. Let's hear your, your, your reason why you, you make it a crime against humanity. Well... There are some uh, experts in this, including one in the United States, who has written a paper um, explaining why this is a crime against humanity. From our point of view, why it is, 
is that um, there are hundreds of thousands of people being killed every year as a result of climate change, mainly extreme weather events. Uh, yes, mainly in the um, uh, in the economically deprived and most vulnerable regions, but uh, not all. Um, uh, we're certainly having people being killed in uh, developed regions with these extraordinary extreme weather events. But also in the developing regions, we already have increasing infections as a result of floods and the heat. Um, uh, we're getting increased malaria, uh, which we weren't sure whether we were going to get or not. But um, uh, this is now being reported that there's a significant increase in ma- malarial transmission and cases. So um, an organization called DARA, D-A-R-A, was commissioned in 2012 by a large number of governments, the most vulnerable and least developed governments, to do an assessment. In actual fact, it was the second assessment on how many people are dying as a result of climate change or climate disruption. And um, uh, they did a very thorough, complicated estimate, and it was 400,000 a year. Well, if you tot that up over the years, we're looking at millions of people, and 400,000 people were being killed when the temperature increase was under 0.9 degrees C. We're now at 1.1 degrees C. And the big thing that clinches the enormity of the crime, which has been established since the very first assessment in 1990, is the big characteristic about global climate change is the so-called inertia of the climate system. And this has been likened, you know, to a super tank or a Titanic, you know, um, uh, and it is all to do with the ocean. So, today, we're at 1.1 degrees C. The last IPCC assessment in 2014 said that we're absolutely committed to double, 2 degrees C. So, 2 degrees C is catastrophe. We are now decided that we're going to give it everything we've got, those people that want to give it, um, uh, to keep the warming to 1.5 degrees C. But um, the worst, certainly the worst ever, and I would have to say the worst imaginable, um, public environmental population health ongoing catastrophe is now inevitable. The only way that we can prevent this is to be able to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And there is a huge amount of discussion now, because we have to do it. Well, uh, we don't have a feasible way that we can do it. Um, And the chances of us in the next few years developing a feasible way to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is not good. Now, here's the crime. If the policy in order to develop this new technology, which we could do, you know, I mean, we could have a Manhattan project, you know, like this year starting, right? And in a few years, I'm sure that we could develop the technology to do that. But instead of uh, rushing into getting this technology developed, everything is being blocked, right? So if you take the obstruction of the huge amount of um, uh, government support, encouragement, investment, and everything. Um, I agree with you totally about the private sector. Um, uh, And that is um, amazingly good. I I mean, it's just incredible how much... We're getting as much, if not more, investment into the clean, renewable... um, uh, I call this uh, non-combustion energy so that the public can understand it's a little bit easier than zero-carbon energy. Um, uh, the burning age is over. Um, and, yeah, it leaps and bounds. And in the book, um, and it was my partner, um, Elizabeth Woodworth, who coined the term game changers for the survival. And they really are. I mean, they really are absolutely amazing. And, um, you know, they're sort of coming out every month. I do also agree with you, and I'm so pleased to hear you say, and that people are obviously understanding, we have to stop emitting, right? 
And we've known that by the science for many years. And the reason why we have to stop emitting is that carbon dioxide just lasts like forever in the atmosphere. One thing that I think people, I want to underscore that people need to understand is the temperature at the surface of the earth doesn't go up in perfect correlation with the CO2 we put into the atmosphere, you know, that day. The CO, yeah, the CO2 in the atmosphere turns up a switch and then equilibrium at a higher temperature is reached years and years, decades later, and then maintains for a long time. So, uh, and then of course, things like melting glacial ice, that takes time. So we're probably locked in right now. If we, if we stop, if the human species goes extinct tomorrow, mm-hmm. we're probably going to have significant sea level rise just because oh, yeah. of what we've we're done so massive, far. Massive sea level rise because, um, uh, the present, whatever the global warming is, it lasts for thousands of years. Literally thousands of years. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, we don't know, uh, what natural process is going to happen to stop that. Um, we certainly do have to have, and I'm serious about a sort of Manhattan uh, project Marshall plan, which I t- we talk about in the book. Um, yeah, we have to launch, um, you know, you've got a really good, um, organization in the States now called the, um, the climate mobilization. And, uh, they're really, really good people. Um, they've been getting a lot of good attention and, you know, the, they coined the uh, phrase, um, or borrowed the phrase of uh, wartime mobilization. And that's definitely the right way to look about this because, you know, when you look at us going to war, you know, sort of killing each other, you know, it, it's amazing. I mean, the United States, um, when the United States entered the war after Pearl Harbor, it was absolutely astounding how fast they started producing these brand new armaments in huge, huge numbers. You know, literally, um, the United States economy turned on a dime, you know, there's and a, because of that. Yeah, there's a the famous... There's a famous moment where uh, Franklin Roosevelt assembled the uh, leaders of the automobile industry and said, I need you to build, uh, I forgot the number, something like 50,000 planes by November. And he gave them basically <laughs> a list of things he needed. And and one of them said, uh, Mr. President, we can't possibly do that and still keep making cars. And he said, you haven't understood what I said. You will not be making any cars until this war is over. I remember coming across that, you know, and and uh, I had no idea. Oh, my God. I mean, I was shocked, you know. Oh, my God. For years, the United States didn't produce any cars. I wish I could remember the number of the planes and the tanks and everything. But it was an astronomical number. Right? It, the, the number he said was large, and the number they made was double that, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, ultimately, yeah. yeah. So, oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. interesting, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so we so, can do it. Uh, and manufacture. What is it, what is it that if we do mobilize for a war against rising uh, rising temperatures what is it that we would need to make what would we need to produce we've got pretty well all the um, uh, um, energy uh, sources that we need to replace all fossil fuel energy for electricity when it comes to the heavy lifting of um, uh, industries smelting metal particularly aluminum you know making cars and things like that from metal and of course, heavy transport. Okay, that that that's a very difficult nut to crack, because that involves what is called um, high energy density power, and that's what fossil fuels, unfortunately, particularly coal, is particularly good at. It can put out a huge amount of power, you know, sort of at the flick of a switch almost. And uh, all of the so-called problems with the uh, new renewable energy sources, they've all been solved. And um, one of the reasons why they've been solved is largely because of storage. So although, um, uh, you know, the the sort of uh, poster boys for renewable energy, you know, is the amazing solar voltaic, solar thermal, which is the one exception to what I've said. So solar thermal does produce very high energy power. Um, we could also do it with geothermal. Um, but now I just read last week that um, some uh, teams somewhere have a, another huge improvement. Uh, the improvements we get with renewable energy are, are, are big, very, very big every time they occur. 
And um, uh, they now have a plan, and uh, scientists say that they can do it. They can produce a storage which can take in the low energy density power and then can put it out as high energy dense power. So these things are really exciting. I mean, can you imagine like a big super storage battery that, you know, you could build next to an industry and it can have its um, clean, almost zero energy um, power to do its heavy lifting and smelting and manufacturing. So we're almost there. But we're completely out of time. We're totally out of time. So we need this wartime mobilization, if you want. And, and of course, it would be all the nations working together instead of all the nations fighting each other, you know. Um, I mean, there's not a question in my mind that if we did that in just a couple of years, we would have all the renewable energy, um, uh, non-combustion energy, to replace all fossil fuel energy. Um, you know, if you if you threw in some, uh, and uh, we did look at nuclear fission, we think it's a thoroughly bad idea to be closing down uh, nuclear fission plants, which Germany has done, and that was a political reason. And uh, they closed down their nuclear fission. They said that they believed that their emissions would go up when they did so. Well, their emissions are going up now. And Germany, for the first time, that's been, of course, the great leader in reducing emissions. It's now, for the first time in the next few years, it's not going to meet its targets. So we need everything we've got. But the other thing that we that we have to do, and um, uh, we've sort of known for many years that we would have to do it, is we have to sort of do the miracle, do the impossible. And that's to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in a safe way and then secu- secure it so it doesn't leak out again, so-called sequester it. Now, um, the trouble with those technologies is that they don't make any money. So um, we would really have to have government involvement in that. We'd also have to have the investment industry involvement. We'd have to have the big banks involved, um, of course, as happens in wartime. And then we know that we have the technology, the mechanical technology and the chemical technology to literally uh, drag the CO2 out of the air. I mean, it seems amazing to me, um, uh, but it's being uh, done and tested. And in fact, it's actually on a very small scale operating in Canada near where I'm speaking from. And that can then be converted into a solid and then um, uh, the solid carbonate can actually have industrial uses. But, of course, the great thing is that we could just um, put it in a great big container somewhere and then it would be safe. But that's why we need a, a, a real global wartime mobilization. We, we can do this, you know. Uh, until recently, I was a little openly my my position on all this was that we can do this, like you just said. But my internal you know internally i was concerned about what we really were able to do but recently i've come to realize that a reasonably good estimate in the united states it's easier for me to think about just the u.s because that's where i have most of the data available and it's very important and and it's big enough that's kind of representative of the temperate zone um so in the united states we could probably without too much difficulty harvest the equivalent of about 75 percent of the energy that we need uh, from solar sources and about the same amount from wind. And yep. we're already at 20% with nuclear and hydro or more than that possibly, although a lot of hydro is Canadian. Yeah, yeah. So we can get up to 165%. You're right. You know what? I, a few years ago, I, I took a look at this myself because I felt like you felt. And I realized I really didn't know very much about these uh, renewable energies. So I looked at them one by one. You know what I found out? Every single one, I mean, it wouldn't be possible, but every single one had the potential of replacing all the energy in electricity that the world was using at the time. Right. Now, if, if we take that and, you know, people worry about, well, we have to change our lifestyle. And, okay, I don't personally mind. That's staying, an interesting one. I, I don't mind changing my lifestyle. I myself have lived in the rainforest for years at a time with no electricity. You know, I can do that. But people uh, pl- worry about that as a political problem. But one way yeah. to manage this also, you mentioned the large energy demanding industries. We could actually just change those lifestyles in a sense 
by using that, the, the problem with this 165% of energy we can make is that it is, it varies a lot as to when it's available. It can, that can be adjusted with storage, but we can also yeah. vary how much it gets used. So we can, if we can retool industry to be able to turn up and down significantly day to day, week to week, month to month. And, you know, so you're the steel industry. We have two rules. One, you, uh, can make, you can have all the energy you want mm-hmm. free. That's one rule. The second rule, mm-hmm. it has to be the energy we give you, which will be mm-hmm. variable. And then into that industry, fold in significant expenditures of energy on this sort of mechanic thing you're talking, mechanical thing you're talking about of how to grab carbon out of the atmosphere. All that extra energy can be used for that. Right. Yeah, I agree. The numbers are um, hard, though. You know, we currently use the world uses a double-digit percentage in, in energy units. We use a double-digit percentage of the entire photosynthetic budget of the natural world yeah. every year at any given yeah. moment. I mean, it's crazy, <laughs> and and I mean, we've known for decades, you know, that we we waste sixty um, percent or more of all the electricity that we produce. We don't have to do that, you know. So um, I think what you're talking about is, number one, intelligent planning. Well, of course, you know, I'm talking planned economy then, you know, and the people politically don't like that, but we have to do it because we have to plan for survival now, right? Um, the other thing, though, is um, intelligent technology. So uh, there are houses and there are large buildings that are made so that um, they run themselves very, very efficiently. So no matter what happens to the, what the house owner does or how the people in the office building behave, um, their efficiency is determined to be very, very much higher than the average efficiency. So, yeah, th- th- those are things that are n- not hard to do. And, and uh, you know, with the people say political will, you know, um, uh, but we do have, I totally agree, we do have the entrepreneurial will, right? So, uh, that really is something that, I'll be frank, I didn't expect to see the, you know, the rapid development that we have in all these amazingly good technologies. It is amazing. Now, we have, so we, we identify that we have a problem, and we identify that we even have solutions. Mm-hmm. There are forces working against that. I want to ask you, for example, I think we could talk about a few different topics here, but one of them is the think tanks that are so-called, and I use the word think loosely here, uh, like the Heartland Institute. Uh, you, yeah. Your book is out, right? Yes, it is. Have, it was uh, out in February, published in the United okay. States. Are, are you being sued yet by the Heartland Institute? <laughs> Well, unfortunately, no. Oh, that's, that's a shame. That's too bad. Because I've been sued by them. It helped me a lot. But I will tell you something. Um, uh, um, I decided to make websites years ago, and then I decided to make YouTubes. And um, uh, um, this is uh, tragically amusing, perhaps. But I realized that every time I put a YouTube out, the first person you know, to um, comment on it was a climate denier. And I realized over and over again that this happened, so I just thought, oh, what the heck, just ignore looking at the uh, comments. Well, imagine my surprise when after a few years I decided, hey, I can do these YouTubes better. The ones I've got out there really are pretty sloppy. So I redid them. And of course, you can guess what happened, right? Immediately, I put the new one out. I, I got the deniers on, on again. So I, I don't understand it. I mean, there's obviously something organized going on there, but... um uh um, in the book, um, we do cover that. We talk about the Koch brothers and, um, uh, you know, the vast amounts of money. I mean, one of the problems is, I mean, look at how much the, uh, you know, the CEOs of the big energy corporations are paid. I mean, it's, it's just, just phenomenal. I mean, it's just crazy. So, um, and uh, imagine what we could do with saving the planet and restoring the planet. If we put a fraction of the kind of money that's being thrown around, wasted, right, at uh, preventing us restoring and saving the planet. I mean, just imagine. Now, and we get into that, well, I'd have to bring up subsidies, right? You know, mm-hmm. we have all these um, uh, technologies. We have intelligent 
planning, which has been around for a long, long time. And um, But we have still, all the governments in the world are handing out taxpayers' money to the fossil fuel industry, right? And it's becoming increasingly obvious because the IMF, of all organizations, you know, um, uh, IMF is sort of criticized by um, people on the left, I guess, and I've been one of those over some years, but oh my God, they've done a darn good job on the subsidies and they started doing it actually 10 years ago. And now they put out reports that certainly have made headlines because the fossil fuel subsidies, when they include externalities, which is very proper to do, we're, we're talking trillions of dollars. Um, $5.1 trillion a year or something was the last uh, one that the IMF. So, you know, the fossil fuel industry, it appears to me, is being propped up. Imagine with the wheel where equally competitive and more competitive in some regions, I'm told, of renewable compared, uh, compared to fossil fuel options and choices. Imagine what would happen if uh, all the governments... Uh, stopped, frankly, being criminal and uh, said, no, 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 we really can't be giving taxpayers money out to destroy the planet. And so they just pulled them. Right. Imagine what would happen. The market is so sensitive, so powerful. Oh, my God. That would be a great thing to see. I imagine there'd be less drilling in the Arctic and in risky uh, deep, deep water drills off uh, Carolina coast yeah. and so forth. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, um, uh, the uh, the natural one for the fossil fuel industry is to use those drills on geothermal. Uh, there is an unbelievable amount of uh, deep and ultra-deep um, geothermal energy. And it's fairly well distributed around the world, so that's rather good as well. And um, a little bit more expensive, um, but not a whole lot more expensive than fossil fuels. And if the subsidies were removed, we would definitely see a lot of more geothermal than we're seeing. My province here in British Columbia, we could produce easily more than 50% of all our energy with geothermal. We're not doing anything. Well, you talk about it being expensive, but... How expensive would it be to move Manhattan, Philadelphia, and Baltimore <laughs> inland? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not a joke because that's what people are going to have to do, right? You know, I mean, literally, that's what would have to be done. Um, I would have to admit that, um, uh, you know, we over the years, um, we tend to talk about sea level rise whenever – Somebody talks about disastrous or catastrophic changes in the future because of global warming tends to be sea level rise. Um, actually, um, that is actually the last of our worries. Um, the first of our worries is starting already, and that is loss of our food production, loss of our crop yields. So, um, but Greenland is the, the melt is accelerating. It's accelerating still, and we're getting um, uh, um, loss now. We're beginning to get net losses out of Antarctica. The sea ice in Antarctica, for the first time in the past couple of years, um, declined. That is in the wintertime, in the summertime in the southern hemisphere. Um, so, but yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they would all have to be moved. But sea level actually plays into that as well. In a couple of ways. One denier argument you hear is, gee, if it warms up enough, Siberia will be farmable, but it would also be underwater because a lot of Siberia mm. is right at sea level and a huge amount of rice in Asia is grown at just a little above sea level right now. So it exactly. It and and, that and we're, we're, we're well aware that Vietnam, you know, and those countries that you say um, they're in big trouble just, just because of sea level. And, and that's starting, I believe. I believe the salinization of their paddy fields and everything is starting. So these these things are, are catastrophic, right? I mean, if a huge population loses its ability to produce rice because of global surface warming and, as you say, sea level rise, you can't go back. You know, you, you just can't say, oh, dear, we we got to put that right. No, we can't put it right. What is the role of the media in all this? And what has it been and what should it be? The role of the media um, uh, was terrible, absolutely terrible. 
up to the 2009 Copenhagen conference. And they were really, really awful because, as, as you well know, um, they would always report global climate change as some scientists believe that the climate is being changed, blah, blah, blah. And then they would put the other scientists, you know, from Heartland Institute and what have you, um, uh, the denier scientists. And, and, and I mean, there are some scientists, unfortunately, with, with you know, with reasonable credentials that um, uh, have some pretty odd ideas about climate change. But most of them, of course, are scientists who have, uh, you know, they have a veterinary degree, for instance. Or, um, and, and that's true. because <laughs> That's one of the uh, so-called experts that... Uh, was put out in a list and uh, in British Columbia, so I have noticed that one. Um, uh, so, what would we? Um, uh, I got off on a tangent, didn't I? Well, well, talk right. about the, me- the role of the media and what the re- role of the oh, media yeah, should yeah, be. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, thanks. Because you know, I noticed a change during the Copenhagen conference because of the 2007 IPCC assessment, and the media definitely were transformed. And they changed until just a couple of years ago. The media up to just a couple of years ago were on every single important scientific paper that came out, you know, which, of course, you know, I get and look at. And and they would report them very, very well. But they seem to have given up on that in the past few years. You know, is this something to do with the Trump administration? I don't know. Maybe So um, uh, now there are exceptions, okay? And I'll uh, tell you the exceptions. The exceptions in the United States are the L.A. Times, always great on climate. Um, uh, I don't really know about the other ones. You know, the, I, I, the Washington Post certainly has run very good stories from time to time. Um, uh, um, the, um, what's it called now, American Scientist, is it called? Um, uh, they, they have Scientific American and American scientists Scientific are both American. yeah, yeah, journals, um, yeah. Uh, and, and they fairly consistently put out some very thorough very good coverage on the climate change situation in the UK um, it's the Guardian which gets better and better the big uh, one in the UK which has been absolutely stellar for years is called the Independent mm-hmm. um, uh, Der Spiegel has in Germany yep yep that's Put out, uh, be, so it's not like all the media are bad, right? Um, but for the the trouble really is for the you know the average person who's busy, you know I'm retired, um, uh, you know family, and what is the news you're going to sort of absorb? Well, unfortunately, it's not very helpful news that you're going to absorb on climate still, you know. It's not out front. It's not completely honest. You know, um, we're not really being told how bad it is. We are being told um, about the technologies. So yeah, that's good. To some extent, for a listener's based in the U.S., uh, it's worth checking out the uh, private nonprofit Media Matters. Mm. They're a watchdog, mm. and they look closely at American media, and they report on it very carefully. And in fact, you mentioned LA Times. I think that one of the main climate reporters there started in Media Matters some time ago. Oh, that's interesting. So there, there's, there is an industry there. Uh, it is often the local news that's bad. That, that just does it right. badly. They, they, they're not up to state. With respect to energy, too, it's really important to note that people, what, uh, if your information is six months out of date, then mm-hmm. it's, it's not very useful. Uh, you know, we had a, an interesting event. We're having our, uh, the early, we're in the early phase of our election season right now in the U.S., which means we're having in the Minnesota party conferences and conventions. Yeah. And we had a convention, our local convention here in the western part of the Twin Cities, uh, occurred and a, a colleague of mine had a, had a uh, resolution that we should, mm-hmm. Minnesota should move as quickly as possible to using electric cars. Right. And, Someone came up to speak against the resolution, and he said, well, no, because uh, we make a lot of our electricity from coal, and therefore electric cars are actually not good. And that yeah. was probably something that was true several years ago, but it hasn't been true in a long time. But you can still find it being said as though it was true now, if you look around at the Internet uncritically. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and you know, the, um, uh, the experts, movers and shakers, they're all agreed on uh, universal uh, electrification, right? So that's electric transportation, but also everything. Everything that we're using fossil fuels for, um, uh, we can very, very quickly electrify them and we can put out, um, you know, I mean, the like we've talked already, you know, the potential for, uh, we haven't talked about uh, ocean energy. That hasn't made a huge progress yet, but ocean energy, all ocean energy um, is potentially um, um, energy dense power like the great big hydropowers, but um, if a lot of, um, and this would require a lot of public investing, I'm sure, um, if we started rolling in ocean energy, I mean, my God, I mean, the amount of energy that's in the ocean staggering, right? So, uh, yeah, total electrification um, has to be done. And, and I agree with you, you know, um, there certainly was a time when you could be uh, reasonably critical about this because you couldn't put out a lot of renewable energy, you know, um, uh, and you couldn't put it out all the time, you know, 24-7 when people wanted it. But um, as you say, um, things are changing very, very fast. They're changing very fast in a bad way. By the way, my my, uh, my version of the Manhattan Project will study the use of lightning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> we, we get a lot of thunderstorms here in the upper Midwest, and there's a lot of energy in them, and I'd like to capture some of that. Well, you know, um, we should never laugh at these um, uh, um, ideas that some of us may think are off the wall, because um, uh, if you look back, that's where a lot of very big breakthroughs have come through, right? I don't, don't do the kite thing, okay? Yeah, right. Yeah, you can only do it once. Lightning's very, very powerful source of electricity, but you can only use it one, one shot at a time. No, but seriously, you're right. Ocean energy, the, the tidal energy and wind energy off the ocean, yeah, it's a lot. I, I did want to go back to the ocean, and you had mentioned the Great Barrier Reef, and you had mentioned the fact that two-thirds of it now has died. And obviously that has implications for feeding uh, the world, too, because of the fisheries that depend on reefs yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, this is the ocean planet. 95% of the uh, habitable space, um, uh, 99% rather, the habitable space, believe it or not, is oceans. And um, ultimately, the oceans determine the climate. The scientists are the first to acknowledge that it's only in the past, you know, really few years that we've really gotten serious about the oceans. Um, ocean heat is accelerating. Ocean acidification is accelerating. And um, uh, deoxygenation is accelerating. Now, surface warming is bleaching the, reach, the reefs. And uh, we had, it was a massive bleaching, right? 2015, two, 2016, 2017. Um, mercifully, it looks like the barrier reef is going to be let off a little bit um, this year. But uh, the corals um, north, the, the heat is intense um, around Papua New Guinea and uh, corals also further out um, into the um, East Pacific. The heat is terrible and um, no, 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 we're we're losing coral reefs. We're we're killing coral reefs. Fossil fuel emissions are killing coral reefs. Um, Can we geoengineer coral reefs back? I no, I really, really don't think so. I think we. And thank you for bringing it up. I think we, what we have to do is we we have to face the facts, and the facts are that we probably killed the world's coral reefs, and perhaps then, you know, people will think, well, how much do we really want to lose? Because we're we are losing um, the earth, you know, literally for today's children. Um, it used to be grandchildren, right? A few years ago, mm-hmm. not anymore. Um, so the um, uh, I've been following the coral reefs because um, you know we've got these two wonderful gems on the planet, right? Um, Great Barrier Reef, um, oceans and tropical rainforests, Amazon. And um, we're destroying both of them. And uh, coral reefs, of course. Yes, um, uh, very important for fisheries, 
But the number, I, I, you know, um, you, you, I read that anywhere from 25% to 40% of all marine life um, utilizes coral reefs at various important stages of their development. So um, we're fishing the ocean out as it is, right? It was years, years ago that um, uh, we discovered that 99% or 90% of the big fish had been fished out. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we really, we, we really have to wake up and we really have to realize, you know, what, what we're doing to this planet. I, I mean, we all love nature, right? I mean, everybody does. You know, what you do when you have some spare time? Well, you go out in nature, you know. You go, um, uh, you go for a holiday. Unfortunately, you fly, but everybody appreciates nature. So, uh, it's a, it is a terrible, terrible tragedy what's happening to the coral reefs. But, you know, I mean, it's true that when there's hope, there's always life. So, if we got this huge, huge project together with all the nations cooperating, I know one thing: we will be absolutely stunned by what we would be able to do. We would literally be able to make miracles happen again because we've done it before. Um, uh, human beings are amazingly, um, uh, it's astounding what they can do when they cooperate together, you know, for a cause, whether it's an evil cause or whether it's a good cause. Right. Yeah. Point. Yeah. So the coral, coral reefs looking very, very bad indeed. Yeah. Um, I think uh, we've got. We said we probably got thirty percent now of the Great Barrier Reef dead. I mean that is absolutely unbelievably terrible. What do you advise people to do now to try to help turn this ship around? Three things: um, uh, get politically involved, right? You know, um, none of us, none of the countries really have a you know huge turnout in the elections, right? So. There's too much political complacency generally, and there's certainly way too much complacency as regards to climate change issues. So get engaged, get involved, um, because government has to be moved, and government always. Oh, by the way, whatever stripe of government, right, however bad and rotten a government appears to be, history tells us they can be changed. Uh, the public is able to change them, and suddenly they become heroes, right? So that's the first, I think that's the most important thing. Um, If they want to know, if you understand climate change and you're concerned about it, what is the biggest thing you can do personally, which is going to have the biggest impact, no question, and this is coming out in the media a lot, uh, go vegetarian and then veganize yourself and your family. You will be a lot healthier. And uh, you will be helping the planet a lot because that's where a lot of the methane comes from. And also um, uh, um, carbon dioxide from the agricultural industry and deforest deforestation is produced by the livestock meat industry. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's just sort of one thing which could really have a massive impact, right? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you mentioned the paddy fields and, and, and rice. They produce a lot of methane as well, so that's unfortunate. Um, the other thing, the other thing is uh, in your political action, um, tell your governments every week that they have to stop subsidizing fossil fuels because they're criminal if they don't. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, then the other thing is investment, right? 350 was, you know, I, I was pretty cynical about, I'm afraid about the 350 project that started a few years back, with, you know, divestment. But mm. um, that really did catch on. And if you think about uh, revestment, so if everybody, I've, I, I've done this slowly over the years. All my savings I've transferred into um, renewable energy. They're all making money, right? Um, I've never regretted doing that. It's making good money. Well, everybody can do that, right? You can all go to your bank or your pension fund or whatever, and you can say, look, so-and-so, I don't want to invest in uh, fossil fuels anymore. I want you to look at my portfolio, all of my fossil fuel investments, and we've all got them, right? Um, Take them out and put something in and preferably um, replace it with um, renewable energy, which is on the up and up. 
So there's a lot that individual people can do. Um, the uh, the lifestyle change um, now is, um, well, you know, I mean, we've been trying hard on that a long, long time. So we're going to need um, uh, policy, right? We're going to lead, need economic instruments. And uh, we're going to need a huge amount of investment. That's tricky. Um, there's a lot of investment going into renewables, but certainly we have to have uh, orders of magnitude more. Yeah. Uh, that's where we have to involve the banks. Um, we have a um, we have a big protest going on right now. Um, uh, it's not as big as Standing Rock, but it's big in um, uh, coastal British Columbia because there's an American big corporation called Kinder Morgan which is into um, that disgusting process, fracking, fracking for oil in Texas, I think it is. So they have a project that our federal government has approved of, and I think that's a terrible crime. And they have a project, um, uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, they're calling it, and they're going to triple, almost triple, the plan is, the um, amount of oil that they're carrying from the tar sands in Canada, and then it'll go to tankers and go down the west coast of the U.S. as far as California. But the but the big bonanza that these people are looking for um, is, of course, to be shipping this oil to China and Asia. Mm. Yeah. So um, uh, um, these things um, these things have to be have to be stopped, and the public seems to be getting more and more and more. The um, we've we've got protests pretty well every other day where the Kinder Morgan um, uh, facility is. People are being arrested um, and it's growing. It's very interesting actually because rather like Standing Rock, it's led by the indigenous people, by their indigenous leaders. Yeah. But, but, but you know, um, I thought that was a great sort of triumph for America. I, I thought that Bernie Sanders and all the young people, you know, um, I thought that was a great triumph for America. So, yeah, I mean, we're stuck with a, uh, he's worse than a clown, you know. I mean, um, uh, you know, you know the amazing thing about the Republican opposition? And I wouldn't have known it if, if some publicity hadn't been given to Donald Trump when he was a candidate. Somebody in the media um, ferreted out a, uh, um, a letter that he'd signed in 2009, which, um, and it was a very strong letter. Um, which a number of, uh, you know, various leaders and industry leaders and people, you know, hotshots, um, had signed to the government of the day, telling them that they had to come up with a very, very strong United Nations agreement. And, uh, I mean, it was a great letter. I mean, it was really unbelievably good. Well, Donald Trump signed that letter. So then I decided, hey, I wonder about the Republican Party. Maybe I'm being too hard on them. You know, there was a year, and it was 2008-2009, when the Republican Party completely, completely changed their platform and policies towards climate change. All of a sudden, they decided that climate change was real, climate change was dangerous, and we're going to have to do something about it. A year later, they were back on the same road. So the politics really can be moved, eh? Yeah, it can be. Well... Peter Carter and Elizabeth Woodworth's book is Unprecedented Crime, Climate Science Denial, and Game Changers for Survival. It's brand new from Clarity Press, and it is an excellent book. I I want to recommend people reading it that might consider reading it, think of something in particular about that. And that is a very popular sort of book these days regarding politics in America are books about how money moves around and dark influence has an impact on policy. There is no place where that happens more than in climate change. And this book also documents and discusses that kind of thing in some detail. So besides just the climate science, there's also that very important part of the political and economic phase of this. Yeah, thanks. Elizabeth Woodworth was particularly good on that. Yeah, it's a very important part of the book. Thank you again for listening to Iconocast. Your purchase of books and supplies through Amazon.com through the links at our site, Iconocast.com, and that's Iconocast with K's, benefit the show, and perhaps someday we will be able to purchase good editing software. We appreciate it. Look for another episode soon, most likely remaining on the topic of climate and climate communication.